paloma ya voló. Oh, oh ay, marinero navegó. Right, so what's up everyone? This is Manuela from the Andrews Family Fund sitting here in the beautiful conference room of Youth Sentencing Reentry Project with our fearless leaders doing this work here in Philadelphia. So thank you all for having me here for our connection, catch up, coffee and what is this? Arugula? Yeah. Oh, delicious arugula. Ooh, chocolate, my favorite. I'm so glad you all were able to make time and just kind of want to connect really quickly and let the movement know what you've been up to. So who's in the room? Who's in the room in this fabulous team? Thanks, Manuela. This is Katie Barnett, Director of Operations here at Youth Sentencing and Reentry Project. I oversee some fundraising, communications, financial management, HR, a little bit of everything here. Oh, you got all the hats. Hey Manuela, thank you for having us. This is Lauren Fine, one of the co-founders and co-directors. I work on our mitigation work with young folks, juvenile lifers, uh, some of our policy work, uh, supporting Katie and some of the work that she does and working with many of our volunteers as well. Right now, and Hey Manuela, this is Joanna, the other co-director and co-founder here at YSRP. Doing all the things that you just heard and supporting the work of these wonderful women and working really closely with our re-entry team, which we are really proud to have led by individuals with lived experience and building out that part of our work really in earnest for the first time this year. Tell me more about that. What do you mean the individuals with lived experience and living out that work? What do you mean by that? Yeah, we have people who unfortunately spent decades in prison, sentenced when they were young, one as a teenager, one as a very young adult, and they have been back in the community as leaders in a lot of different respects and have brought that leadership here to YSRP to work directly with the young people we partner with and with former juvenile lifers. And when I say former juvenile lifers, I'm talking about individuals, men and women, who when they were under the age of 18 were told that they would die in prison. They were sentenced to life in prison without parole on a mandatory basis. And as many folks who are listening might know, this changed thanks to a U.S. Supreme Court decision, a series of U.S. Supreme Court decisions between 2012 and 2016. What were those decisions called and and what did it mean for Pennsylvania in particular? The first decision that really changed the way that things work here in Pennsylvania is called Miller v. Alabama, where the Supreme Court said that you could no longer sentence children in a mandatory way to die in prison, to spend the rest of their lives in prison. So it didn't end life without parole for children which unfortunately is still a fight that needs to be fought but it said that you had to at least consider certain circumstances so how old the young person was what was their situation at home in school in terms of the case all things that weren't able to be considered before here in Pennsylvania where we'd actually sentenced more people to die in prison as children than any other place in the world so over 25% of the so-called juvenile lifers in the world um, were the only country that does this to children over 25% of those folks were sentenced here in Pennsylvania. Mm. Um, So that was the first decision. And then the second really major decision came in 2016 called Montgomery v. Louisiana, which basically just applied backward or retroactively the Miller decision to say that all the folks, about 2,000 people who'd been sentenced in a mandatory way without considering any of the circumstances who were children at the time now got to go back to court and get a new sentencing hearing and hopefully come home. So you have helped people get home. 
We have. Yeah, what's that been like? I mean, I'm just thinking a million questions racing for me, but like, what is up with Pennsylvania? Like, one out, you know, 25% of all young people uh, sentenced to life without parole in your state. Like, how did we get here? What's going on in your state? What's the history of this? Thing? How many hours do you have? <laughs> <laughs> what's like your, your rough kind of cut? Like, what do you think? What's up with that? Histories, decades of racism, of white supremacy, and the history of, of slavery and what that means in mass incarceration, mm-hmm. not just in Pennsylvania, but across the country. And mm-hmm. we see that play out every day, not just in the juvenile lifer cases, but in the cases of young people who we work with who are facing charges in the adult system. It's not new. It's mm-hmm. as old as this country and older than that. We are you know, daily dealing with the ramifications and the implications of a fundamentally racist and broken system. So it's interesting because you mentioned that you've ramped up your your staff, right? Can you tell me a little bit about the growth that your organization has been through in the last five years? You you all are five years old, right? Almost. And yeah. you were the two founders here. <laughs> so what was it like when you first opened this organization to where do you see yourselves now and what what does the future hold in store for you? Well, the fact that you started this out by using the phrase conference room, I think itself embodies um, some of the transition. In the beginning, it was kitchen tables at our respective apartments. So things have definitely changed in terms of being able to take what was an idea and make it a physical reality in a lot of respects. And we still have a lot of room to go in terms of the world that we want to see and the community specifically that we want to live in and the way the justice system is involved with that. But in terms of the organization, it was two people with an idea in the beginning and we're very lucky to meet funders who are courageous like Andrus Family Fund and others who were willing to take a risk on an idea that was kind of preposterous honestly at the time and we've been really fortunate to have an amazing community of folks who've showed up, who've responded to that idea, who've said yeah, kids don't belong in prison. They don't belong in adult jails. They deserve better than that. And we need to, as a community, think hard about what we want our community to look like and how the systems that we create and fund and um, enforce on people can reflect that and can further that. And so we've had an amazing community of volunteers, of supporters in all sorts of respects show up alongside us and do this work to make that a little bit closer to the system that we live in. So can you tell me like a day in the life of YSRP, like what happens in this space? Who's in it? What are they doing together? I just, if you could just describe that for our listeners. I think we can safely say that no two days at this organization have looked the same. Every day people are doing different things in the community and in the office, whether they're welcoming people into the space for the first time who fit what we described, former juvenile lifers who are coming in for the first time after being released following a 35-year sentence, a 42-year sentence, or young people who just got home from having been in an adult jail for months at a time and trying to figure out how to get back into school, how to navigate the realities of now having an adult criminal record and what that means in terms of employment. And our team is working in close partnership with these individuals to figure out how to troubleshoot, how to problem solve, who to connect with, what resources are available for them. So that work is happening on a direct service level. We are also constantly running in and out of here to go to meetings with partners around the city, juvenile law center, the public defenders, the district attorney. There's close coalition work happening, collaborative work happening to try to move our policy agenda, which is getting young people out of adult 
prisons and jails, getting young people closer to home and back where they can be supported and allowed to thrive if provided with the necessary resources. So that's just a little snapshot. The work happens locally. It happens on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, driving around (laughs) to different prisons and um, Mm. different facilities. And it happens a lot on the phone, trying to connect as much as we can with other sources of support and colleagues in other parts of the country who are are doing similar righteous work. Absolutely. And I mean, has anything happened as of late that particularly added some momentum that gave you uh, a little more fuel to keep going into year six? Or any trends that you're seeing that have been particularly concerning around the, the work that you all are doing? Yeah, as Joanna kind of referenced, the fact that there are um, folks who were told they would die in prison as children who are physically in our space now, um, Mm. in in our community, and, you know, leading and showing up and being present in ways that they weren't allowed to be before is, to us, has been the fulfillment of a vision and a dream that we never thought would happen this quickly. And so it's the ability to learn from and partner with and fight back alongside folks who were told they would never have that opportunity has been for us a breath of life and really just motivation. It's enabled us too to have kind of a more intersectional approach generationally to connect young people with folks who were once young people who the system threw away um, but now have so much value and insight and wisdom to share and that for us we've learned so much from that. Can you give me an example of like an interaction between an elder and a young person like what are the things that they're helping each other learn or supporting each other on I was really fortunate a couple of months ago to have a young person I worked with who spent a considerable amount of time in an adult jail starting when he was 16 went to a juvenile placement came home has been trying to figure things out find a job find a a meaningful life for him and his family in the community he connected with one of the former juvenile lifers who did close to 45 years inside. And they connected around their shared love of boxing and their shared faith. And they actually asked me to leave the office for a minute so that they could pray together at the end of the day. And it was a human connection. And that's what so much of this is about. It's not about a one-to-one introduction because there may be a job opportunity or there may be a story or an anecdote that one person can share to the other. But it's about connecting across a lived experience across trauma but also across resiliency and across just having interests like any other person may have whether it's 45 years of incarceration later or 12 months of incarceration later and here we are living as citizens together in this city and what can we learn from each other and share with each other to build strength. You mentioned earlier in my time with you the importance of making space for a long-term relationship. How has that impacted the way the organization is doing its work now? It's the core for us. We, you know, much of our work, to your earlier question of what the work looks like on a day-to-day basis, it's in living rooms, it's in kitchens, it's in, unfortunately, jails and prisons. We don't expect folks to show up at our office downtown. We show up where they are. You know, that pervades the whole culture of the way that we operate is that We understand that the systems that we're working in and fighting against are oppressive and create barriers for folks in very physical, real ways. And we never want to be another barrier or another 
thing that um, gets in the way of people doing what they want to be doing. So we're out where they are. We're not asking them to come here. And we also don't cut off our relationships. We really value them as actual human relationships. So we don't say, okay, you've been home three weeks. You're now quote unquote re-entered and we're mm -hmm. done here. It's really about being responsive to where people are on an individual human level and you know trying to be as human as possible as advocates as lawyers as social workers as volunteers all the things that we are at core we're humans having relationships with folks and we think that's really what's led to our success and our ability to make change both on individual case levels but also on a systemic level is bringing that humanity and those relationships into the center of the conversation the recent expose that you all mentioned earlier to your point around like where are the places where humanity is still uh, completely lacking in terms of systems approaches to young people what what might you want to say about that i don't know i mean you're in these places every day right yeah a brilliant journalist uh, with the philadelphia inquirer named lisa gartner wrote a breathtaking article uncovering decades of abuse at a facility called Glen Mills in Delaware County right outside of Philadelphia. We've unfortunately known many young men who've gone through that facility, who were there at the time of her reporting, who were actually mentioned in her reporting, who were routinely abused by the people who were paid to take care of them. Mm. And we're talking about significant abuse that was routine and also covered up by leadership and not paid close enough attention to by the agencies in the state that were charged with holding them accountable. And we find ourselves in really a historic moment in terms of juvenile justice reform, how we think about the places that we send children to and what the accountability mechanisms are there and, and what it means to, to perhaps reconceptualize newly create humane, caring environments for young people who happen to come in contact with the justice system. So I'll ask you the question I asked you earlier. Did people know that these things were happening and why, why were they allowed to persist? The really tragic part of the story is that it was an open secret that wasn't very well kept. Among families, you know, folks in the community knew because people's lives had been touched by this for a long time. Folks in the system, you know, attorneys, advocates, social workers, folks, you know, on staff at this place. And it's not unfortunately just this place. This is an extreme example. But versions of the abuse that happened there happen other places too. Mm -hmm. This one happened to be well-researched and brought to light, but it was in part because people really did know for a long time, but there were a lot of reasons why it was really challenging and hard um, and intimidating to come forward. So it took the bravery of young people, of families, to stand up and say, this happened to me and there may be repercussions for me actually using my voice, but it's important to do that and to put my face and my life forward in this way. So what does re-entry mean in this context? Uh, successful re-entry, the most forward-moving models, when we picture young people and elders and communities and grown folks who've lived through this type of trauma and violence, like, and how does your organization meet them where they are? Yeah, we seek to walk alongside people and to understand what healing might look like for each individual and what resources can be garnered to support that healing um, and how that is 
self-defined um, and not imposed by external organizations um, and other structures. And that looks like a lot of conversations, deep conversation on the inside, uh, as close to the imposition of a sentence as possible, and then iterations of that conversation, not feeling like any belief or understanding about successful reentry is going to remain static, but that people grow and change and evolve over whatever period of incarceration they may be dealing with, and that there ought to be structured supports and partners waiting to welcome people home on the outside who can again, to use the term again, walk alongside them and say, hey, I know that this program over here is doing something really good, let me connect you with them. Let me ride the bus with you to this other program that I know has open applications. Let's think about what your plan is and how we can actualize it together. And that's what we seek to do in our youth cases and in uh, cases where we partner with former juvenile lifers. Not to provide all the services ourselves, we can't do that, but what we can do is, is make the connections as thoughtfully as possible. What percentage of folks who need this support are you able to serve? And what is the gap? And so, what would it take yeah, to fill it? That's a great question. We've defined our scope pretty narrowly intentionally because um, we're small and we you know, um, are able to do things in the way that we believe in because of that, so it's really intentional. but. Um, you know, juvenile lifers, there are up to 500 folks who could be coming home, hopefully, you know, in our lifetime, and 130 folks have already come home. We've been working with 40. So even just of that number, it's small in terms of our reach, in terms of the individual, you know, really close partnership relationship building work. But we've been able to reach other folks, you know, in different ways. So our reach is bigger than that in terms of resources we've put out, you know, gatherings that we've created and spaces we've created for folks to get together and be in community with one another. There's, you know, huge need beyond what we're able to do on any given day or week or month. For the young folks, we work with a really specific group of young folks who when they were under 18 were um, charged with a certain type of case that got them prosecuted in the adult justice system mm -hmm. and that number is shrinking in Philadelphia for a lot of reasons so we're actually able to work with a decent percentage of the young people in that particular situation but unfortunately as you know what we just talked about the placement facilities the abuse there are lots of other structural issues in the system that we work you know, to dismantle that are so much bigger than what we're able to tackle at our current size. And unfortunately, you know, that may be the case for some time. The gap is big. Uh, and we have been shouting from the rooftops that every person who comes home from whatever form of incarceration ought to have dedicated case management, for lack of a better term. We're doing what we can for the cases that we've engaged in at the earliest stages. We really think that the city, the state, has a responsibility to put some money on the table and support this work, and I'll just say it frankly, because if, if we were to gripe about something, it's the fact that that hasn't happened, right. and we're cobbling together what we can with the generosity and support of funders like AFF, but there's so much more that's needed, right. and we're not talking about nuanced, complicated service delivery models. We're talking about basic needs around housing, employment, education, healthcare. Um, things that people need to survive and that they're not able to connect with because they were locked away as children for 35 years, for right. example. And then they're expected to navigate these systems on their own. And we think that that is 
completely unacceptable. Right. And I would also say that, you know, the way that your organization does it is really cutting edge and evolved. So you're not the typical reentry organization. Um, so just wanted to definitely lift that up. I'm just wondering what keeps you all in this work as we wrap up our short visit together, <laughs> which was so, you know, delicious coffee and <laughs> treats. You know, y'all have been doing this for five years and you've grown an organization from you two who are doing all aspects of the work from fundraising to visiting with each client to now having a staff of seven, is that right? I know it's quiet today and the young people are on break, so they're not here, but just curious like what keeps you what keeps you going what keeps you in this work and and the road ahead knowing full well that there may be another Glen Mills and another community or right here in Philly like what keeps you going for your fellow comrades and in the social justice movement it's a lot of things it's graduations it's meeting people after their day of work. It's seeing faces of folks, again, who were told that they would never see light outside of a prison structure, who are now our partners and our friends and our teachers. It's the family members that we get to work with and learn from and who are brave and courageous and speak out and allow us into their lives in a really intimate way that feels like a true privilege so it's it's all the the things and the people and the spaces that we get to occupy yeah all of that and also the incredible team that we've been privileged to develop and work with every day Katie who's been sitting here with us through this conversation is the backbone of this organization and you said she's wearing lots of hats she's also like spinning lots of plates and juggling lots of balls and uh, <laughs> you didn't you see know, her because it's a, an audio but yeah. Katie had her hands up yeah. all the way up, doing all the things but our team is amazing. Our volunteers are incredible, dedicated graduate students in law and social work, retired professionals who feel compelled by the mission, who feel outraged by the injustice that's happening in the city, and who've been willing to dedicate you know, sweat equity to this work in a way that has moved it forward. Um, and I feel inspired every day by their leadership and by what they teach us. What might you say, Katie, to the average person who you think might be interested in learning more and maybe getting involved and would like to support YSRP? Visit our website. We have some incredible photos up there of the third anniversary of the Montgomery Supreme Court decision that just happened earlier this year. There are maybe 70 people that came out who are now home from prison, who are out, who are living full lives with dignity on the outside. Um, so go check out our website, see some of those amazing photos, and learn more about our work there. Um, it's, it's an incredible honor to get to learn the stories of the folks that we walk alongside every day. It's, it's our deep conviction that every person has a story to share and, and that it's a core part of our work to help make sure that story is told to decision makers. And if they wanted to support you and partner with you financially, would they be able to find information on the website? On absolutely. How to do that? That's yeah. a great question. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Make a gift online through the Support Us link on our website. Great. YSRP.org. YSRP.org. Well, thank you, you brave warriors. It's always inspiring to see the growth of your work, your organization, your, your leadership. So I just want to thank you for being my last visit in Philadelphia and can't wait to see you soon. Thank you.
Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.